A few years ago, I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from many of the various Buddhist lineages. In one of our discussions, the question came up, what is Buddhism? The Dalai Lama, who was one of the guests and um, a guest of honor at this meeting, said that his response to this question is often that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization, of nibbana, cessation, complete purity of the mind, of the heart, the mind and heart of an arhat, In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak, uh, there was the sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly believing that this is possible. Last year, when I sat with my root teacher, Sada Upandita, he spoke in a very similar way about this same possibility over and over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, the Buddha speaks in this same vein many, many times also. This is truly our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so here we are, making physical and mental efforts in the service of awakening, in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart, we find that along the way of our practice, we certainly do begin to see, begin to taste the fruits of this process of purification. Here in retreat and in our lives outside of retreat, we come to know, to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, that certain states of mind increase and others decrease. We begin to find that, at least to some degree, we've let go of what is unwholesome. 
we've let go, at least to some degree, of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourselves, what's harmful to others. We find that the wholesome states of mind, of heart, are more and more our experience, more readily available, manifesting more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices deepens. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice, in the immediacy of the here and now, and in relationship to what might be our deepest goals, our confidence begins to take a deeper root. This is from the Buddha. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the wholesome, of the unwholesome, brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate the wholesome. This extraordinary compassion and wisdom of the Buddha, this mind of a Buddha seeing only suffering and the end of suffering, and then encouraging, exhorting those heading towards suffering to take great care and to pay attention rather than judging them or condemning them. And the heart, the mind of a Buddha, in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering and rejoicing for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can be a great inspiration inspiring feelings of self-confidence for us. This sense that, in fact, it can be done, as the Buddha tells us, that, in fact, I can do it. Over the many years of my practice, there have been times when I've felt various difficulties, had various difficult times within myself, and also in relationship to the teachings and the practices. And when I've really been honest about this with myself, I saw that 
most of the time it was because I was afraid, I was fearful that I really wasn't capable of actualizing these teachings and practices. And I've also found over the years that when I've been confident, when I've been filled with self-confidence, my appreciation, my love, and my gratitude for the teachings just deepens and grows. My teacher, Sada Upandita, tells us that we must always approach things with the attitude that we can do it, that we can be successful. He says that this is what the Buddha taught. And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are filled with this approach to the practice. This evening we'll explore um, a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha exhorts us to work with them in our practice in the light of the purification of the heart, the purification of the mind. And in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation, of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet and the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation, liberation from anguish, liberation from confusion. His search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening in an idealistic or philosophical way. Not from the stance of idealism or some philosophy. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, resistance, judgments, sadness, strong desires and attachments, confusions, pains, from our present life's experiences, and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experiences. Some of these we may have seen and mindfully investigated. Some of them we've hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever is here, whatever is present, whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the skeletons in the closet, when they appear. Maybe there are some people that seem to be able to 
find a true happiness, a true ease of being without ever letting out the skeletons. And that's just fine for them. But actually, I have to say that I have never met anyone like this. I'm wondering if any of you have. Most of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find a true depth of happiness and ease of well-being in our life. Or we'll continue to delude ourselves into thinking that we can be happy, but never actually really being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what have been, may have been hidden or what we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and buried away the skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around unconsciously, unwittingly, for a very long time. And this is a a piece from Stephen Mitchell, his rendition of the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other, He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us a very powerful tool, this tool of mindfulness, this tool of open-hearted, non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, receptive presence to be able to see clearly, to be able to go home. Our vipassana practice, along with the practices of metta and karuna, teach us, give us the tools to open to our experience from the heart of kindness and patience, from the heart of acceptance and compassion in relationship to ourself and others. This is such an amazing process, this process of learning to open to our experience from the very deepest center of our being. 
learning to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached. To see just what is right here, right now, and begin to realize that it doesn't have to control us. It doesn't really have to control us. We notice. We note how it is in the present moment. The breath. The body. Mental states. The various colorations, the moods of the mind are like this in this moment. With this tool of mindfulness grounded in kindness, in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that anger, irritation, doubt, fear, judgment, worry, grief, sadness, strong desire, really have no more control over us. The reactive habitual need to, for instance, analyze it over and over and over again, or that habit of trying to get rid of it, or trying to fix, or ignore, or delude ourselves with a seeming equanimity in relationship to difficult emotional states. These reactive habit patterns begin to be met with the heart of kindness, with the, with the intention of mindfulness, and begin to be seen through. Things are as they are. The beginnings of a healthy response, rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions, is born out of connecting and a knowing. This is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is our rooms with all the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. We can begin to be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 10 or 20 years or just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. And a saying from the time of the Buddha, rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or from something that we ignore. And of course, as you well know by now, 
it's not a linear process. As we continue to strengthen and deepen mindful awareness and concentration and continue cultivating the heart of kindness and compassion, it's this whole seamless circle of our practice that allows for the clearest depth of the truth to be seen and known. As each of you are becoming more and more familiar with, we sit quietly and we watch ourselves. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, or at least minds that aren't totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must be brought to the surface and clearly seen, investigated. And as we know, this takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere. And the rest takes care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance based in fear. And this can be a kind of vicious circle. And so we work. We practice with gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourselves in and through this process of opening, opening to and letting go of. Relinquishing, relinquishing our conditioned habitual patterns of suffering. Letting go of relinquishing our addictions of mind, we could say. And from the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. In the Buddha's first Dharma discourse, he said something that you've probably heard many times. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. I'd like to take a bit of a further look at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life. 
which is so directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering that is inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of anger, fear, judgment, strong desires, attachment, sadness, etc. And yet we so often take the opposite of this truth to be the reality of things, taking our experience and things as though they're quite solidly in place, permanent, taking our experience and things to be separate and solid happenings, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and project into the possible future, solidifying both in our mind. And yet life just simply keeps flowing along. But there's good news also. An amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. Not an absolute, as the Buddha so clearly tells us in the second, third, and fourth noble truth when he speaks about the cause of suffering, the ending of suffering, and the path that leads to the ending of suffering that Annie spoke about the other evening. Where I live in Taos, New Mexico, during the rainy season, what we call our monsoon season, in this big open sky of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows, even double rainbows appearing. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. There's, of course, just around the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, and the angle of the light is just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes very, very quickly. Everything in life, including ourself, 
all of our experiences of body and mind are really like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. It's so obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky phenomena, both the mental and physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things, of experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably, eventually bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Liberation isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided, or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. In the brilliant clarity of the Buddha's teaching, he countered the saying we have in English of ignorance is bliss. Ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is ignorance. And bliss is bliss. With ignorance actually providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Not our true nature. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So I'd like to spend a bit of time now exploring a few hues of the rainbow of emotional state beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear can often appear in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance. That experience of feeling like, I won't. I won't attend to. I won't open to. I don't want to. 
or feeling like, I can't, I can't be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience or strong emotional state or a pain in the body or maybe even this very pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe this a feeling of being frozen or caught, not being able to take the next step, so to say. Fear from this perspective, if we take it up, if we buy it, can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and other people as judgment, blaming, the critical mind. This fear turned inward manifests as self-judgment, self-blaming, feelings of unworthiness, not being good enough, or just not being enough not doing it right or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to any of us. Really, all of this is based in fear. I'd like to offer you a definition of perfection that is not the way we usually think of perfection. This is from Chan Tzu. The mind of a perfect woman or a perfect man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in or identifying with states of mind of judgment, blaming, criticism, inward in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others, which is actually often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that sometimes we're afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially if we maybe we've taken a peek and it's not been so easy. One of my teachers used to tell me when I'd come in and fearfully report the experience of fear. And he'd say to me, fear, well, fear is just fear. When I was uh, first told, to the, told this, I responded inwardly, with, well, that's really easy for you to say, <laughs> kind of a, you know, a coloration uh, of anger in this, this kind of thinking. 
and fear of the fear. But actually, over time, I began to see that, in fact, fear is just fear. As we gently persevere with our practice of mindfulness, with a growing and strengthening open-heartedness based in kindness towards ourselves, we begin to be able to meet and receive fear, to come close to it, to look it in the eye, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, not be shut off to the unknown, shut off out of fear to the amazing vastness of possibility. As we get stronger, as our mindfulness muscle gets more developed and our heart gets stronger, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine. It's not me. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on an infinite number of conditions, some of which we know and many of which we don't know and may never know. It may be a moment of a very intense experience but it's clearly not me from this perspective. It's not that the energy of fear will never appear again, but we can learn to be steadfast. We can learn to stand in the fear. We can learn to lose the fear of fear itself and begin to see it clearly see through it like we see through the hues of the rainbow. The Buddhist teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been trained, how most of us have been conditioned, patterned. This is uh, from M. Scott Mamaday, Native American writer. It's called The Fear of Botali. The warrior Botali rode among his enemies. Those who saw him said he appeared to be totally without fear. Of course I was afraid, he said. I was afraid 
of the fear that I saw in the eyes of my enemies. It doesn't work to repress or ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. The fact is that they just reappear again. Putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities. Keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And it's not about blindly acting out afflictive emotions. This is like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns, strengthening and reinforcing the habit of them. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and swept away in them. There can often be quite a bit of restlessness in the body and in the mind, making it quite difficult or maybe impossible or seemingly impossible to become focused and mindful of our experience in the present moment. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our experience. The intimacy of connection and mindfulness that's been mentioned many times in the talks that Annie and I have been giving. This intimacy in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing experience away or pulling away from it or desiring it to be different. it's very important to learn to work with these afflictive states of mind, states of body, when they're what's present in the rainbow of our experience. So, now taking a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, powerful energy and can be quite seductive from this perspective. I once knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached, very identified with her anger, and in fact spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt very strong and very powerful in this energy. But unfortunately, she wasn't at all happy. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her, and then they'd feel the sharp sting of the needles, the sharp burn of her anger, and they'd move away. She was actually a very lonely person, and yet so identified with herself 
as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, lose her energy and her power, lose the fuel for her life if she let go of anger. I think it's often overlooked that the first person hurt is always the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, it's tight, narrow, constricted. Our quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing in any perspective vanishes. We feel restless, driven, nothing satisfying. Our sleep is often quite difficult. The body's tense. With anger, the sense of self, the sense of me, looms very large. And so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it instantly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though a line's been drawn that isn't to be passed. And each angry moment deepens the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that anger, rage, and hatred develop from a momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind. The point at which we become aware of anger depends upon the quality, depends upon the strength and the depth of our attention, the strength and the depth of our mindful attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many, many different parts, components. There's thoughts, there's stories that are spinning out in the mind. The specific mood of the mind, the emotional tone of the mind and then various changing bodily sensations. All of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as we see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger, it's very helpful to just simply let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind, so to say. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger itself, but they also feed the anger. They're like fertilizer 
for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations in the body. Feeling this emotion directly and fully in itself without the story. What are you feeling? Maybe heat, tightness, pressure, contraction. Where is it? How is it changing? Notice what your relationship to these sensations is. Is there resistance? More contraction? Give it your best attention. Feel it. See it. Is there interest grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. Every experience that occurs within our body-mind continuum is worthy of our mindful attention. Every experience. If the emotion is too strong to sit with, do some walking meditation. You might even walk faster than you usually do when you do walking meditation. And bring your attention directly into the body with the walking. Or you might open up to the natural world outside, the expanse of the fields, the trees in conjunction with the spaciousness of the sky. Notice the birds, the squirrels, the small creatures of this world. Don't indulge the thinking. Stay very mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, in the body. In those moments of a connected present moment mindfulness, Afflictive emotions disappear. They aren't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing. It's really beyond compare in a very quietly wonderful way. And again from Nisargadatta. A student asked him, what is the real cause of suffering? And his response was this, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I'm this. I'm that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional 
states doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and wisdom, the understanding that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing, that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or even recognition. With a clear, non-self-absorbed mindful attention based in the heart of kindness, therein lies the possibility of the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, clinging, sadness. So I'd like to spend just a few moments uh, looking at greed, strong desire, clinging, attachment. Classically, uh, desire, clinging, attachment in the mind is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We're not able to see the bottom. Our vision is obscured. When our mind, our heart is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of strong desire and attachment, we're blinded by desire. You've heard that, that statement. I think there's some misunderstanding, actually, in interpreting this particular teaching, the Buddha's teaching on desire, that all desire is bad or that desire is inherently a bad thing. Desire is a very natural human experience. In fact, it's what got you here in the first place. (laughs) There are healthy, there are worthy, there are wholesome desires. And there's the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need in order to be contented in order to be really at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, in fact that it can't. Some time ago someone sent me... um, Uh, one of Mother Teresa's prayers. And I was told that this was one of her primary practices. So I'd like to uh, share it with you and just the way it was given to me. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, 
from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. I don't think she left anything out. The practice of someone who many people feel was a saint, an honest saint. We can become quite attached, quite dependent on getting and then trying to keep certain objects of our desire. Expending an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to this or that. Or trying to get something back. Trying to keep something or someone from changing. Or trying to recreate a changing object, a changing experience. And of course, even here in retreat, maybe that particular wonderful sitting you had the other day or last year even. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that is the problem. I think we could safely say that Attachment is the biggest problem in the world. A really good question to ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? How driven am I by my desires? So a very simple, mundane, personal example. A number of years ago, I was at a retreat center in New Mexico that has some of the most beautiful flower gardens that I've ever seen. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to um, where the smell was coming from. And it was a particular flower. I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell. I was very present with it and very aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something else. But I really, really wanted to stay there and just continue continue experiencing this very sweet smell. So in that next moment, that next moment of clinging, of attachment, and not being willing to let go and go on, the pleasantness of the experience of uh, the previous moment was completely gone. And I was feeling a tightness in my body, feeling a very strong sense of irritation in the mind. 
And I got up and I walked away to do what I needed to do next. But there was this feeling of kind of almost like a magnet, feeling of clinging on, grasping on, and planning about when I could get back to that sweet smell. Not pleasant, not really pleasant at all. Attached to the memory of it at that point, wanting it back, imagining how could I get back there later. I think this happens quite often. What was a moment ago a moment of pleasantness, no longer pleasant but a moment of being caught in the grip of our clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens very, very quickly. And so we begin to see attachment and clinging. As we see this, we find that our experience is of attention. It's an experience of a kind of stress, a burning, that burning desire, burning fear. And I think that there's often a confusion, a kind of delusion that this yearning, that this state of desire, this attachment feels good. And we even sometimes confuse it with love until we begin to see it clearly. What is ease? What is happiness, really? It's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of desire a moment of release from the stress of attachment, a moment of liberation through non-clinging. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he went through all of the six sense doors in this way. And then he went on to say, burning of what? Burning of desire, burning of hatred, jealousy, fear, burning with the fire of confusion. A while ago, um, I found a recipe. And uh, at risk of giving you a recipe that you you've already have and have probably cooked up occasionally, I'd like to share this particular recipe with you. One cup of what is. One cup of the inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints one teaspoon of light whining, a quarter of a cup of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable, one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, 
two teaspoons of perfection, four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with it all. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in the exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add to what is and inability to what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form garnished with minced envy, and serve immediately. And um, from another perspective, a similar teaching. This is from a Chinese sage, Nanshin. By not quite accepting because they do not please us, things that are so. We spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe the recipe of cultivating a strong and clear mindful attention, a strong and clear investigation that's grounded in kindness, a strong and clear mindful attention that meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes of afflictive emotions without getting caught up, without getting swept away, without getting overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them, like we see through the colors of a rainbow. With mindfulness, investigation, and clear discernment, the contraction And identification, attachment, the contraction of and the identification and attachment to afflictive emotions begins to break up. And the wholesome states of mind, of heart, begin to be more accessible and more often the experience of the moment. We really do begin to touch the liberation of non-clinging. One way we might consider emotional states in relationship to our practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, 
sensitivity and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is from the Vimalakirtri Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotuses, the red lotuses, the white lotuses don't grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that in fact, as human beings, we experience many strong, difficult energies. We experience the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And it's not to pretend to ourselves or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence are for many, many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons, so to say, being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called the nectars, the Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions, or cankers, as Sayadaw Upandita calls them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional energies are digested into wisdom. So taking just a few moments to look at a few of these, a few of these emotional energies and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self. No self-grasping transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The mind, the heart, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of clear discernment. Clear, discerning, mindful awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting or transforming into great compassion. And lastly, fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of metta and compassion 
bringing the capacity to connect without fear, to connect without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go of what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. The place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and in our mind the place of freedom from burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. And what is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added and nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment is just enough, just as it is. We begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. This liberation through non-clinging. I'd like to close the talk with a poem called Hokusai Says. And as probably many of you know, Hokusai was the Japanese painter uh, whose most famous painting was this uh, great huge wave. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention. Notice. He says, keep looking. Stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck. Accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength 
is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.